Welcome to the $7 Trillion Ideas to Save the World podcast. I'm your host, Nika Moini. I'm a master's in international affairs student in international economic policy with a focus on development financing at Carleton University. I'm also a community leader, advocate of youth entrepreneurship, and author of Careers in International Relations, Generation Z's Guide to Global Citizenship. You may have found this podcast through your interest in development finance, or just ideas to make the world a better place. Either way, there's a lot to learn, so let's get right into it. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the $7 Trillion Ideas to Save the World podcast. Today, we have David O'Leary, who is the head of impact investing at World Vision and also the founder of Kind Wealth. And he is going to be chatting with us about his experiences and his work with impact investing. So thank you so much for being here. Oh, thanks for having me. Wonderful. So can we get started with you just telling us more about what you do and your story of how you got there? Oh, yeah, sure. Um, where to begin? Uh, so I, as you mentioned, I'm director of impact investing at, at World Vision Canada. Um, so I lead a team of uh, five uh, uh, professionals uh, in the impact investment space. And essentially what we're trying to do is um, look to the kind of for-profit world and, and approaches uh, to generate sustainable uh, financing to deliver on World's vision, World Vision's mission, which is to help the world's most vulnerable children. So that's kind of one of my hats. And then the other, as you mentioned, is um, founder of Kind Wealth. And that is a social enterprise that um, helps provide um, high quality financial advice that's unbiased and free from conflicts of interest um, to um, demographics that are typically kind of underserved by financial advisors right now. And that's um, kind of younger people who haven't saved up a lot of money just yet because um, they've got mortgages and school debt and all sorts of things, but still have a lot of questions about their finances. And so we try to look to wait, make, you know, the, the, the advice affordable and, um, and uh, high quality and, and deliver it to those who need it. Awesome. And can you tell us about how you got started in this impact investing space? Yeah. So um, I, grew up without any sort of exposure to um, international development and uh, impact investing wasn't even a thing when I was, um, when I was growing up, uh, I went into pure finance and uh, route and I did an MBA and then I um, uh, came out and I worked for a company called Morningstar, which is a wonderful um, company that uh, provides a lot of different services. But uh, I worked in an area of investment research and what we did was we helped we analyzed mutual funds and we told people which mutual funds were, were worth investing in and which ones they should stay away from. And we wrote kind of these research reports that uh, financial advisors would largely use to help them kind of figure, figure out what recommendations they would make to their clients. Um, but I did that for about 13 years. I spent about nine years doing that in Toronto before I met my wife in 2010. Um, and I was a you know, purebred right-wing capitalist. Um, and I met my wife who uh, works for World Vision Canada um, and her parent, her mom had worked for World Vision Canada and her parents uh, had both been development workers and her grandparents had grown, spent their entire lives in Ethiopia uh, doing missionary work. And uh, so when I met her, it was an eye opening experience. Um, 
I learned a lot about uh, international development from her and just moreover, like even more basically, just that learned about the problems that were happening in the world and the challenges people faced um, that I had had no exposure to um, and no awareness of. And so I took a trip and uh, took a sabbatical from my job at Morningstar in 2010. And I um, spent six weeks volunteering with World Vision in Sierra Leone. And that was sort of the start of a very, uh, I think, transformative period of my life for the next, um, over the next six, seven years, I um, uh, really opened my eyes to what was going on in the world. And I felt sort of deeply compelled to start doing more um, to help kind of bring, um, to address the uneven distribution of, of opportunity in the world. That, you know, it really bothered me that there were some people who had no um, access to opportunity um, that, you know, is poverty, often created by extreme poverty. And so um, I just, after that six weeks in Sierra Leone, spent the next probably six years trying to figure out how I was going to use my skill set to make a difference in the world. Um, and so I immediately began thinking about like, okay, I, you know, I'm useless with a set of tools. <laughs> so my mind immediately went to like, okay, I'm not going to go to a Habitat for Humanity build because I'm useless with a set of tools and it just doesn't seem like a very effective use of my skills. Um, I'm sure I would have a fun trip, but um, I, I'd feel bad for whoever had to live in the house I helped build. Um, and so I was thinking right from the start around like, okay, how could I use my skills in finance? Um, and impact investing was still not huge. I mean, it was in 2010, it existed, but um, I don't think it was as prominent as it was right now. Um, microfinance was all the rage. And so I was learning about microfinance um, and work in World Vision was doing an economic development. And, uh, and then I just was kind of following the industry and reading and taking courses. And I was traveling a lot through Africa. Um, my wife and I, ended up moving to South Africa in 2012 and I spent um, nearly four years there and just got to do some kind of community work, um, building up a youth development program there that um, I'd helped start and, and run. And so just was getting a lot of practical experience and reading a lot. And um, we, when we moved back, uh, I had started Kind Wealth and, and actually World Vision approached me. I, I knew a bunch of the folks there and um, they had an opportunity to have somebody head up the impact investing unit, which was new for them. And they saw that I had a background in finance. Um, and the folks on the team, um, the existing team, uh, were more, had a more of a, like a international development background. And so they, I have, I brought a complementary skill set. Very cool. Um, so my question is, you know, you mentioned that before you met your wife, you weren't really engaged in all these issues. And why do you think that a lot of finance professionals are not really aware of, you know, like international development or kind of global issues in general? That's a really good question. Um, it's, it's complicated. I, I think there's probably a variety of reasons. Um, I, I think I'm probably fairly typical is my guess. Um, for me, it was um, intellectually, I was aware that these things existed and happened. I had traveled Europe. Um, I hadn't spent any time in the developing world up until I met my wife, but I had 
you know, traveled the developed world and in particular your, a lot of Europe. Um, so I, I was aware of, you know, other things outside my bubble, but um, I'd never seen poverty firsthand. Um, there's a lot of misconceptions around what it is and what it isn't. Um, I had a very naive view of, of what it was. Um, and, and it's not, and it's not real to you until you see it and you've met somebody and you've, I mean, for me, it wasn't anyway. Um, and the more, and when I went and saw it firsthand in Sierra Leone and got to know the locals and, and saw meet these individuals, you really hits home how, um, people are like, for all our differences, humans are like, regardless of where you're from, or we, I think we share a lot more in common than we have in differences. And so when you meet people and you realize like, oh, so listen, this by and large, we're all the same, right? Like you put people in two different people from different nationalities under the same circumstances, like take away food, water and security. And like, we all respond very similarly. Um, and so it just made it real to me that like these people are no different than me. And like, this just could have easily been me. It was just random luck of the draw that I was born where I was. So I think it's those things. It's like, A, you're just not following it. You're not reading it. And B, it's not real to you. And to, because you don't travel to those places, you don't know anybody. You're just in your own bubble. Right. And what do you think it's going to take for you know, the finance world to really start understanding the development world and vice versa, because, you know, through my experiences with this podcast and working at global affairs, it seems like this is kind of the gap that's missing. So what, you know, what have been your experiences in that? And what are your thoughts on that? What's it going to take to, to get the finance community more involved and, and aware? Is that the question? Yeah, like, what is it going to take for the finance community and the international development community to start kind of talking more and understanding each other more and, you know, really growing this movement of impact investing. Yeah. Oh boy. That's a lot. There's a lot to unpack there, but I'll, um, so I think that I addressed it from both ends because I think it's different. If you're talking about what is it going to take for the finance community and then versus what's it going to take for the development community. Um, I can speak probably more competently to the finance community because I spent more time in it. Um, and sadly, I think the answer is, is, um, is simple. And, it, and it's that they're going to have to feel like and see that there's an opportunity to make some money. Um, and that I think is the, is sort of the, the promise behind um, this sort of social finance space, right? Is that, 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 that the for-profit markets are, are at a very efficient, it's not perfect. It has all sorts of flaws, but it is a very efficient way of, uh, of raising capital right? Because there's a profit incentive to it and, and allocating capital to those projects that are the most uh, efficient, the most cost effective, the most profitable. Um, so that's not always a good thing when it comes to the development space. But, um, but, but what we're looking at here, um, and I think this is important to keep in mind, is like social finance isn't going to solve all the world's, world's problems. I know a lot of people in the industry sort of talk about how, oh, this is just such a more efficient way to, to raise capital and it's more sustainable financially. And that's all true when the conditions are right. But there's all sorts of circumstances where it, it's, it's, it's not applicable and not relevant and, and, and not um, fruitful. So I think about disaster um, relief 
uh, emergency context, things like that, where there's no time, the risk to, to set up a structure of financing, you know, a, a, a sustainable sort of financing arrangement. There's the costs are too high. The risks are too high. Um, you just need to get emergency services and relief in immediately and you need to spend money and you need to sort of deliver those services. Um, so this is, I guess the, the point of that is that this is, I think of this as in addition to the great traditional development work being done with traditional aid and philanthropic capital. Um, so when we have, when the conditions are right and you can actually structure an attractive financial arrangement, um, then this is great. Um, so I think from the financial end, it's going to take seeing those opportunities and the ability to kind of generate a, a, a reasonable profit will attract people. And that will be for good and bad. There will be people who use this as a, uh, as a, who, who come into it as a way to generate, raise capital and, and make money without being particularly concerned about the impact that they have. So they use it as a marketing ploy. I think that's a concern that I'd have. Um, but it will bring a lot of attention and, and people to the fore and capital to the fore. Um, and then on the development side, um, I think there's, it will, I'm stumbling a little bit because there's a lot. Um, it's awareness, so understanding. I think there's still a lot of misunderstanding about what the opportunity is in this space for um, nonprofits, um, governments. Um, so there's, there's an awareness thing, an understanding thing, um, kind of education, I'd lump all those things together. It's also a big cultural shift that's got to happen. Um, so when you're used to doing as a nonprofit or charity or government, you're used to doing things one way for decades to now talk about, oh, this is a different approach with a different set of, um, incentives and ways of, you know, the, the ingredients for success are different you now have to get people used to doing things a different way. And that's a huge challenge. I think that was a really good answer. <laughs> so thank you for that. Um, so getting a little bit more technical into your work right now, mm -hmm. um, what are some techniques that World Vision has been using in terms of using impact investing and can you kind of talk more about how World Vision is being innovative and maybe what other nonprofits can learn from that? Sure, yeah. So um, at a high level, I mentioned we've got five individuals working in this space. So the way to think about it is we kind of have this kind of, all of us are responsible for sort of R&D, which is just ideating. You know, there, do we have ideas for ways that we can access take sort of market-based approaches and, uh, and apply it to World Vision's mission? So we've got a few kind of ideas that have come out of that process. We've more ideas than that, but what happens once we have the idea, then we sort of test it. Um, so maybe we run a pilot or a, we run it at a small scale, um, kind of create in, if you're kind of looking at software terms, you know, create a minimum viable product, test it, see if it has legs, see how we have to change, tweak it uh, or end it. Um, but we've had out of this ideation process, three ideas that have really, um, taken, taken some roots, um, and we're in the process of either refining and or scaling. So I'll, I'll give you kind of a highlight of the of two of those things anyway, because they, I think, give a good example of how different um, those, uh, those spaces can, um, those things can look. 
So one of the things we've done is we've, um, World Vision is for the very first time um, has at a market and we're raising investment capital for um, essentially what's a, a promissory note. So investors give World Vision Canada money for a three-year term. We pay 3% interest, uh, annual interest on that money while we, um, while we have it. And we take that money and we work with a microfinance institution called Vision Fund. Um, and we lend uh, money to small and growing businesses in the developing world with that capital that we raise from investors here. So we're operational in Sri Lanka, Ghana, Mexico, and Myanmar. And um, what we're doing there is not traditional microfinance, but we are lending, um, there's a, in the developing world, you've got a situation where um, there's lots of microfinance. So these are loans of $100, $200, um, to entrepreneurs who want to start a business. Um, and it's usually like subsistence business, right? So you buy some seed, you, you're able to plant it, you grow some crops and then you sell them at a local market and it's enough to feed your family. But you know, the, the amount of loans don't allow you to grow your business much more than that. Um, and we'll, and then in the developing world, there's also commercial finance. So you can go to a bank, but the banks tend to, the amount of money that they tend to lend tends to be very high. So they don't want to lend small amounts to lots of little borrowers. They want to loan bigger amounts. So that's kind of starts in around $250,000 or $500,000 loans. So what you have is this sort of big missing middle where it's hard to find financing if you're an entrepreneur beyond microfinance, the, the microfinance institutions don't want to lend more than a few hundred dollars, $500 say, and the banks don't want to come down lower than 250,000. So um, what we do is we step in and say, there's a huge gap there. Whereas you're an entrepreneur in the developing world, you don't have access to financing to grow your and scale your business. So can we raise capital from investors in Canada who give us money for a three year term, we pay 3% interest. And while we have their money, we lend that to the entrepreneurs. We lend between five and $25,000 to these uh, entrepreneurs uh, to scale their business um, so that they can start to hire employees. They can negotiate you know, larger contracts to buy supplies in bulk. They can purchase a piece of equipment to make their business more efficient. Um, and so what that does is it stimulates you know, economic activity in these countries because they're you now purchasing more supplies, they're hiring people, it's just creating jobs and income. And we measure a lot of the impacts. So we'll measure things like, you know, how many jobs are, are being created from the lending that we're doing? Is it going to, men, are those jobs for men or for they women? Are they for youth? Are they full-time jobs? Are they part-time jobs? Are they seasonal? Are they contract? So what we wanna see is that this lending is actually translating into high quality, um, you know, good, good quality jobs. Um, so that's kind of one of the areas, and maybe I'll just pause there, see if you have a question on that before I. No, that was good. I think a lot of people are kind of talking about the missing middle and how to address it. So it's good that, you know, an organization like World Vision is actually coming in and helping address that because so far from my conversations, I haven't seen too many people talking about the missing middle. So I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah, and, and there's like within the missing middle, because that's a pretty big range, right? Between let's say $500 and $500,000. So there's people addressing different parts of it, but where they tend to, most of the organizations that we've seen so far are addressing the top end of the missing middle. So maybe it's $100,000 or $50,000 loans. 
Um, and we're looking at the bottom end of the missing middle because that's the hardest place to reach. It's the most expensive, it's the most risky place to play. And so World Vision wants to operate in those spaces because our mission is to, is to serve those who are most in need. Um, we're not trying to compete with others who are like, our goal is to get these um, businesses to a point where they can go to a bank or they can go to another player who's willing to, to lend to them. So we want to play in those places where nobody else is willing to because that's our kind of our mission. Um, so the other thing I'll mention is, is a very kind of different way is we have a social enterprise strategy where we've raised, um, um, we've raised funds, um, uh, grants, donations, where money's gifted to World Vision and we use those funds to make investments into social enterprises that are, um, you know, working towards um, solving, uh, you know, cha international challenges. So it might be um, a new um, healthcare technology. It could be a new energy technology. Um, uh, you know, things like that, where it's going to solve some sort of challenge that we face in the developing world. And so, if we can, we look make to look. Uh, we look to make investments between one hundred and two hundred fifty thousand um, dollars in these social enterprises that are in their early stage and they need financing to grow. So they have kind of a proven business model but they now need extra financing to really scale the idea um, so that it can have an impact in, in the developing world. And so we um, make those investments and not only do we make the investment, but we really try to use world visions um, um, kind of its strengths to bring them to bear. So um, for instance, world vision operates in about a hundred countries across the world. So we have, and in those countries, we've been there for decades in most cases. So what that means is that we know the countries very well uh, and we're well connected within those um, countries and those communities in which we work. So if we meet uh, you know, an entrepreneur who's running a social enterprise um, in Silicon Valley, in Toronto, in London, in wherever, and we can connect them to the countries in which they're trying to have an impact and work and operate um, and bridge those gaps. So yeah, we provide financing and then we connect them. And, and the idea is that um, hopefully they'll be solving challenges and problems, creating jobs in those communities and, and really helping lift people out of poverty. That's very cool. I think CARE has a similar kind of concept with CARE Enterprises, if you've heard of it. Yeah, I do. Yeah, I know some um, Relia Benzera uh, heads that up and I've, uh, she's been a sort of a good mentor to me as a sort of, shared ideas and, and learn from their approach. And yeah, it's, it's pretty cool. You should, I don't know if you've had her on as a guest, but you should uh, chat with her sometime. <laughs> yeah, she's busy until late August, but oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I do know her. Um, all right, and then, yeah, my last kind of question for, um, in terms of kind wealth, can you kind of talk more about that and what, what you've been seeing as the gap in, you know, investing services for the younger generation and what are their needs specifically? And can you kind of talk about what it's been like creating that as well? Yeah, sure. Um, so as I mentioned, I worked for a company called Morningstar and what we really did was provided people with a, an objective opinion about, you know, um, the investment products out there and particular mutual funds. And there was a lot of problems in the industry that I saw from that role that I had and I was very sort of 
Morning Star was very protective about its independence. And so I got to speak very publicly when I saw things that I didn't think were good for investors that were happening. Um, and so instead of, when I left Morningstar though, instead of continuing to just sort of critique the industry, um, if I wanted to offer a solution um, rather than just complain about well, all that was going wrong. Um, and so I, that's why I launched Kind Wealth. And so it addresses a number of the problems that I think exist in the industry right now. Um, and there's a few of them. So one is that the industry is very, it lacks transparency. I, I would describe it as opaque. Um, partly that's intentional in the way that it's sort of structured, but also just a lot of jargon and terminology that makes it difficult for people to really understand what's happening. Um, so as an example, um, pricing like fees are a really good example where there's a lot of uh, a lack of transparency. Um, most people that I speak to, uh, if they have investments um, and if they work with an advisor, a financial advisor, don't really have any idea what they're paying. Um, and it's really strange because like for most, for a lot of people, um, you know, the, the amount that they're paying could be, you know, hundreds of dollars or thousands of dollars or, you know, for a lot of people, it's thousands of dollars um, a year that you're paying. And, and, um, and it's crazy because I, I wrote an article on this, like it, your, your fees for your investments and your financial advice are, are the biggest expense you have that you don't know you're paying. <laughs> um, I, I don't know too many other times where people spend thousands of dollars a year and don't know that, that they're paying that. Um, so the reason that happens is because financial advisors, the way that most of them structure their pricing is that they, um, they take a percentage of the amount of money that you invest with them. So it would be uh, maybe 1%, 1.5%, 2%, it can range. And the more money you have, the lower that percentage goes. Um, but what that means is but they don't ever send you a bill for you to pay it. They just take it out of your investments, that 1% or that 1.5%. And so two problems with that. One is you never get a bill. So nobody ever tells you, hey, you've been charged $500 or $100 or $1,000. It just comes out of your accounts without a, any invoice being sent to you. And, and B, because they express it in a percentage term, a lot of people don't stop and do the math. Um, okay, what does that translate if you take all my assets and you know express that as a percentage? What does that work out to? So for that reason, a lot of people don't know what they're paying. They're paying more than they should. They're not getting very good service in exchange because they don't really know they're paying anything. So they don't they don't get too demanding about what quality of advice they're receiving. And um, you know if you don't have a lot of money saved up. Well, you know, one person, let's say you're an advisor, you're charging 2% or 1%, let's call it 1% to make the math easier. Well, if you only have a, you know, $10,000 saved up, 1% of that is, is $100. So how much time is somebody going to spend with you to help you think about your finances and plan and um, think about things and, and give you advice if all they're going to make is $100 a year? Probably not a lot of, you know, advisors are lining up to help you. <laughs> um, and even $50,000, you know, and so people at our age and stage often have a lot of school debt. They've got mortgage expenses. Maybe they have a young family and they've got kids and daycare expenses. And so they've got, um, you know, they don't have a lot of financial assets. So financial advisors aren't exactly beating down the door to help provide them advice. So I set up Kind Wealth to address those problems. And the way that we get around the, the problem with pricing is, um, we don't charge as a percentage of of what they invest of the clients invest. We just charge flat fee 
uh, monthly subscription pricing. So whether you're, you know, you have ten thousand dollars or, or five hundred thousand um, dollars, it's it's not dependent on that. It's it's um, it's it's dependent on how much time and effort do you need, and you pay. You know, you kind of pay for that. So we kind of have services where it's it's less time and effort, but you know, just getting you what you need to help with and answering the questions for for a lower cost. And then people who want more involved and hands on and hours and hours of time will pay more for that. Um, and, and that tends to correlate to like how busy, how complex your finances are. But for younger people, a lot of us, you know, it's not too complex, but you just have some basic questions you need to help with. And we try to deliver that service um, at a reasonable price. Very cool. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah. that's definitely addressing a demographic that's not really being addressed, I guess. So that's really great. Mm -hmm. Wonderful. Well, those are all the questions I had for you. Um, if people want to learn more and connect with you and your work, where can they get more information? Well, sadly, uh, Rural Vision Canada, uh, Rural Vision's website is not ready yet, the Impact Investing site. We are in the process of, of building one, so in the next few months we should have one. Um, you can go to Rural Vision Canada's website, but you won't find much about us on there, unfortunately, just yet. Um, in the next several months you should. Um, but uh, kind Wealth is just uh, kindwealth.ca, so you can check that out. Awesome. Thank you so much for being here with us today. Thanks so much for having me. It was a real pleasure. Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of the $7 trillion ideas to save the world podcast. If you know someone who would love listening to this content, make sure to send it over to them so they too can learn about it. And together, let's change the world.